You are listening to the Heavenly Chi Podcast, episode 35. Today our special guest is David White and we're discussing Neijing acupuncture. Hi everybody, I'm Fiona Gitchum. And I'm Claire Pyers. And today we're talking with David White about Huangdi Neijing acupuncture. Welcome and hello, David. Hi, everybody. It's great to have you on the show. David was introduced to Chinese medicine at a very young age, learning the essentials of various theories and practices in his mid-teens under his martial arts teacher. David graduated from Sydney Institute of Traditional Chinese Medicine with honours and also holds a master's degree from RMIT University. He's currently in his final year of his doctorate at the University of Technology in Sydney. For the past 11 years, he's been under the guidance of Dr. David Tai in Sydney in both classical medicine and Dr. Tai's own innovative style in the treatment of neurological conditions, namely stroke and spinal cord rehabilitation. David was a founding member of the International Society for the Study of Classical Acupuncture and current director of the Institute of Neijing Research. He's currently in private practice in Sydney's North Shore. You can find him at www.classicalacupuncture.com.au. He's also currently a senior lecturer at SITCM in acupuncture and holds seminars in Neijing medicine all around the globe. In April and June 2017, he will be teaching a course on the classical exploration of the channel system in Melbourne. The INR, the Institute of Neijing Research, will also be launching its online training for all theoretical studies in Neijing medicine early next year, and you can find out more about this at www.neijingmedicine.com. The Heavenly Chi podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment and professional development. Show notes and continuing professional development resources are found at www.heavenlychipodcast.com. You can add Heavenly Chi podcast to your favorite RSS feed, iTunes or Stitcher. You can also follow us on Facebook. All links are in the show notes and we hope you enjoy today's episode. If you really do enjoy our show, please rate us on iTunes. So welcome to the show today, David. It's so great to have you with us. Thank you very much. And I'm very intrigued to know how, can you tell us how exactly you got into such, you know, it's such a specialised niche area of naging acupuncture and naging medicine. Can you tell us how you started off on this journey? Well, so um, as you mentioned in the introduction, I started uh, studying martial arts when I was very young and um, my teacher at the time, John Dolick, started teaching me about Chinese medicine, acupuncture, the basic principles, and um, part of that was also uh, a little bit to do with the history of Chinese medicine. Um, and when I was 17, I finished school, I went straight to um, the Sydney Institute of Chinese Medicine to start studying, and um, I always just had a, a great interest in uh, the classical component of the medicine. Uh, actually, one of the first books I, uh, I ever bought, my mum actually bought me, she was very nice, uh, was the uh, was the Neijing. Um, it was the very early translation, the Ilzevith one, which is only like the first 33 chapters of the Su Wen. And um, from there, I, my passion for it just grew, so I, I continued looking for teachers in that area. Uh, I continued studying it, and um, I've always had the philosophy that as I learned to, um, as I learned Chinese medicine, as I approached its clinical practice, I need to do that from its origins and work my way through to modern day. Um, the more I do that, the more I realize I'm never going to get to the modern day texts or, or even, you know, <laughs> I don't think I'll get out of the heart dynasty either. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's been sort of the, the, uh, the approach is to, is to really go to sort of the grassroots of this medicine and of um, Chinese medical culture as well. And so have you learned Chinese? Like can you read the ancient Chinese, or do you rely on the translations? So I, I've, I've personally translated the entire Neijing, and um, I so I can read and, and write to a certain extent classical Chinese. Um, I must I'll admit my, my Chinese grammar is very poor. I'm, I'm primarily self-taught um, for classical Chinese. My conversational Chinese has been always been quite good, except I don't use it on a day-to-day -day basis, and I must say it keeps 
keeps lacking every time I go to say something to someone in Chinese. <laughs> so um, I, I need just more exposure. I need to not go to China for a while and just walk the streets. And so um, what were some of the things that you – can you tell us a bit about the experience with translating the Neijing for yourself versus reading the other translations? Was, this, was there certain things that you got out of that – I guess you already knew the text fairly well by the time you went to translate it. How can you tell us a bit more about that experience? Yeah, certainly. I, I um, well, one of the interesting things is that my focus has been heavily on the Ling Shu Jing, which is the second text of the Neijing. Obviously, the Neijing is Su Wen and Ling Shu, and um, the Ling Shu wasn't actually really properly translated at an academic level until Unschuld released his uh, only a couple of months ago. So um, for the Ling Shu particularly, I've been working off the Chinese, I've been using uh, online resources. Um, there's a, a wonderful website called C-Text, which has all the classical texts in Chinese, not in English, but they have a, a way that you can study each character individually. And, um, and then uh, obviously for the Su Wen, um, where I've been exposed more to different English translations, I, um, I just sort of slowly worked through, um, you know, without looking at the English and then looking later at, at different translations, basically to see you know, how I was going to test myself a little bit in that as well. And, um, and then working with other people who are much more proficient in the language than myself, um, and you know, people who have a background in Sinology or have been you know, working with Chinese medical texts for a longer period of time. Because it just seems to be that, I mean, I've looked at a few different translations of each of the the Neijing and the Ling Shu. There's more translations of the Neijing as uh, the Su Wen, as you said, um, and it just seems so interesting that um, you can have so many different ways of explaining the same passages. That just seems so very different. Yeah, it's. I, I guess that's one of the biggest issues with or well, with Chinese medicine, not just not just the Neijing, but that you know. English terms, you can't have one English term for one Chinese term. It's often multiple. Um, it's also very much contextual understanding as well. And, um, one thing with the, with the Neijing is that, you know, the, the language itself is actually quite basic inside, but you have people like, um, well, the early translations were where one of the textbooks even Funny enough, says it was English by a certain individual. Um, you know, so it looks like they've used Google Translate to actually break down the text. And then others have more academic or historians' perspective, like Unschuld's. I mean, Unschuld's works are, are excellent, uh, but they do come from a historian perspective. And so my my goal is really, as a clinician, to uh, open up the Neijing to modern day practitioners. Um, it's a text that was, you know. Or is still revered in Chinese medicine. It was used throughout for as reference for nearly every other text that we have in Chinese medicine throughout history. But uh, in the modern day, it's not really seen as a as a unique style unto itself, and it's not really studied um, in the ways that it used to be. So I, I want to approach it from a clinic clinical perspective rather than just a historian or um, sinologist perspective. Because there's quite a lot of info in the Ling Shu. You know, it goes into quite a lot of detail about you know, different acupuncture techniques and different approaches to diagnosis. And, you know, it's so specific. I can I can definitely imagine really immersing myself into it and spending, you know, well over a decade really getting into the nitty-gritty of it. Is that is that sort of where you're at now? Or have you kind of you, you mentioned that you might not get past the Han the Han dynasty. Are there other texts that you're looking at as well? So that's that's a decision I made about about a decade ago. Um, is that I'm not going to look at any other texts. Um, so I, I only read and only study the Neijing in Chinese medicine. Um, and and I, I really besides you know there's some very interesting um, historical texts and um, sort of more ethnographic um, inquiries into Chinese medicine. Uh, but you know, there's great authors like Elizabeth Sue and Volker Shai. Those texts I really enjoy reading. But in terms of clinical details, my my only information is going to be that of the of the Neijing. Um, so it, it is. It's. I mean, it it is a very specific medical manual, and I think that's uh, one of the flaws in in how people approach it today. They see it as a, oh, that's an interesting classic which sort of laid the foundation for for what 
is called TCM now, but I'm approaching it as, as a unique medical style called Nanjing Medicine. And um, in regards to not getting out of the Han, well, it, I mean, there's just there's so much in terms of Chinese medicine, in terms of acupuncture. Um, you know, you've got enough with with the Nanjing, and if you wanted to, you could explore the Nanjing, which I approach would would approach with study as a separate medical theory. And then herbal medicine, you've got the Shanghan Zabing Lun. So it's um, you know you got a whole lifetime times ten amount of work there in the Han. Uh, that's so interesting. I've, I haven't really heard that before with someone just sticking to one text method and, and not reading the others, but also when I can totally appreciate how much detail is in those texts and that it really does take a lot of time of dedication to really draw that out fully. Um, and Neijing acupuncture has a unique diagnostic approach. So I'm wondering for our listeners out there who aren't familiar with it at all, if you can give an introduction to the acupuncture technique. Absolutely. Uh, well, I'd just like to say, in regards to just focusing on one, on one text, it, it, it comes down to myself as a practitioner trying to view the body um, and including their diagnostics and their techniques through the, through the lens of the Han. So really trying to understand how Han physicians were approaching the body and treating disease. Um, so when we come to, to unique diagnostics, I mean the Nanjing obviously, you know, we still can't deny that it did lie, lie down the, or lay down the foundations of Chinese medicine um, in terms of, you know, yin-yang theory, wuxing theory, zhangfu uh, theory and so forth. Um, and of course pulse diagnosis as well, which has kind of been the cornerstone of diagnostics. The unique part in the Nanjing is to how the clinical approach um, it really starts to take in what we call uh, directional medicine, really starts to understand, um, I, I guess, uh, elements of like space-time theories, which you might actually see, you know, later sort of um, physics and things in, in uh, Western thought. But it's also, for instance, basic pulse diagnosis, which many people feel at the wrist, that's one section in the Nanjing. The others would be Renying Chenkol pulse diagnosis, which is wrist and neck, which is a technique that I'm really trying to bring back into fashion, if you will. It kind of went out of fashion after the harm. So trying to bring it back 2,200 years later. And Sanbu um, Joho, which is the pulses which lie all around the body, um, which is uh, Su in chapter 20. And uh, then also relating that in regards to complexion, channel palpation or vessel palpation, what we call channel terrain palpation, um, and, and so forth. Uh, I guess one of the unique components of classical acupuncture, and particularly Nanjing acupuncture, is that acupuncture is, is really about um, uh, treating the ideas of the channels and, and the vessels more than individual points. Individual points are such a small part of Nanjing acupuncture. So it's really about how we go in and do, uh, essentially using our tools, which are the, the Jodzen, the nine needles, um, and it's kind of like micro, micro, micro surgery uh, on, the, on the channel system. So we're, we're going to be needling and diagnosing at very specific levels sort of in the, the three-dimensional channel system. I really like that idea of explaining acupuncture as microsurgery on the channel system. It's such a great, you know, such a great image comes into my mind of, you know, it really changes the feeling about, you know, acupuncture, people talk about it in lots of different ways and, you know, you write the way, you know, from one end of the spectrum we talk about it as, you know, it's energetic medicine and then other people, you know, talk about it from, you know, from the gross level of literally, you know, bloodletting and, um, you know, and all of those layers in between. But, yeah, that idea of microsurgery, I really like that. That's great. Yeah, it's a, it's a big part of, of sort of how, how the, I mean, I always talk to my students and say, you know, the Neijing, um, and particularly like the Ling Shu techniques, Ling Shu Chapter 7, the Guanzhen is where the majority of the techniques are described. They're very, uh, they're very raw kind of mechanical techniques. So, I mean, of course, it's an energetic medicine, but uh, as you start to um, break down the Neijing, we used to have, uh, I, you mentioned I, I used to be part of the International Society for the Study of Classical Acupuncture. We used to have these things called scholar retreats, which were in uh, Washington, um, sort of a forest in, the, in Washington in the US. And our, our goal was to sort of archaeologically break down the text. So it was like a dig. So you'd read through it, you'd find some information, you'd find some little snippets, and then you'd sort of brush it away and you'd find a little bit more. And what we found really is that uh, the majority of the Neijing is, uh, the way it describes the body, the way it describes channels and vessels, 
uh, are exactly the same um, as if you were to look at some elements of modern anatomy or, or physicians this day. So when they're talking about certain channel pathways, a lot of them can be mapped to uh, basically the understanding of blood vessels, nervous pathways, lymph and so forth. Um, so it really showed that they were sort of getting their hands dirty. They were, they were looking at, at the body, they were certainly dissecting and opening up the body. Um, I know that there was an element of taboo with that, but there, there was certainly some evidence of that um, in, in the text and, and in the Han Dynasty. And they were, um, they were you know, looking at different structures that were right there, palpable, tangible structures right in front of their face, and they were naming them. And so they would name you know, the small uh, horizontal collaterals the molmai. And uh, you know, oh, they got smaller. They named them fulo, you know, the floating low. Um, or they went deeper, and they started seeing this idea of uh, muscles, and they saw, you know, sinew attachments, which was the jin jin, the tendon pathways, um, bone. They saw all those things together, and then they then they started to look at them, obviously from a very different idea of how they all interconnected and, and joined to to sort of create what is called the jin law system. So, um, so yeah, so this microsurgery is that. Within, within classical acupuncture, uh, you know, so for instance, a very common present, clinical presentation would be that of, of cold, a, a bee contraction within a certain level. It's very important technically that we find what level that is and then manipulate that level um, with, our, with our tools. So when I say our tools, I mean our acupuncture needles, but of course we use multiple tools in, in Nanjing medicine, bleeding things and I don't know, uh, <laughs> you know, use blunt needles and some nasty looking ones like the PZ and the sword needle. And, and we manipulate at that level and we make sure that that level itself has been um, treated appropriately without affecting or damaging any of the other levels in the, in the channel system. Can you share with us a technique that you use often that didn't really make it through the evolution into TCM or isn't really commonly used in TCM? Well, I, I guess, um, I, I mean, I'm not that, many people in TCM use lots of different techniques. Some certainly come from the Nanjing, some don't. So, so there may be people out there that use certain methods. Um, I would say the most common one that I use that is not that, that oft commonly seen is, um, is uh, Tsuitsu, which is fire needling, which is um, a, a technique of, uh, within the Guanzhen. And um, it's a method which, uh, Basically, you know, you're heating a hot, uh, a rather thick tungsten needle, and you're needling to that cold, like I mentioned about there. It is used for cold, and it's used for the tendon pathways. So, to use it in such a specific manner, I guess, is, is the, one of the biggest differences with any of the techniques that I apply. But uh, yeah, fire needling is something which um, I certainly love and I use a lot, and uh, it's something which. Um, I think it's becoming a little bit more popular. I've noticed a few people around me using it, but hopefully that's because of seminars such as myself and a few other practitioners that are, that are teaching the methods. Um, so yeah, yeah. So fire needling certainly would be one. I remember learning about fire needling um, very early on. I think I was still a student, and uh, my recollection is that you need to use different. Like you can't just use the normal needles. You have to use a special needle. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So, I mean, uh, I, when I first learned it as well, we learned with normal filiform needles. And, of course, those being sort of surgical steel or stainless steel, it slowly softens and melts and it's not a very good thing to, to make red hot all the time. So um, I, I, used, I used needles made out of tungsten steel, uh, which I get made in China. Um, there's a, 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 I'm not sure, I'm pretty sure he's still alive, but Hu Ping Ren in, in China, um, had, has designed his own fire needles, and I actually will often buy his uh, fire needles, which are yeah, tungsten, very large, uh, rather thick um, uh, copper handles. So not your normal thin copper handles, but the old style of having multiple layers of, of the copper handles. So it's a thick handle, and um, and they're also ones that can, they can be heated multiple times. So if you're doing multiple insertions, which is generally the way you do with fire needling, um, then you can heat it up multiple times, the needle's not going to bend, it's not going to warp or anything like that. So the tungsten steel ones are very interesting. So I order, order them and they're still, they're still ultimately single use, as in it's single use per patient. Like I said, you do do multiple insertions, but it's, it's one needle per patient. I didn't mean that you're then going to be using it on someone else afterwards. And it's, um, it's a, yeah, it, it's like I said, it's becoming more, more popular. When I was originally taught, it might have been similar to what you had, um, 
People would use it for, oh, you can fire a needle, you know, this point to tonify and that sort of thing. But I guess the difference is that uh, it's so specific in the aging of what fire needling is used for. I mean, the text itself says that when using, so you use a hot needle and it's for B, and, and B is a, a contraction, a yin contraction, a cold. And then if you read through the Jin Jin chapters later on, around the tendon chapters, then it says very specifically that it's used, that you use the fire needle. And so, or a hot needle, and um, and so it's it's more that each of the techniques that we have, uh, it's it's again making sure that you infiltrate and manipulate the uh, the right level with that technique. So, in terms of how a patient would be presenting, it's not just the typical, you know, I've got a sore back or I've got arthritis. Would you also be thinking about for you know people who've got conditions like MS or um, people with fibromyalgia? Yeah, so um, so again, sort of as, as I delve deeper into harm medicine and, and imaging, um, th those ideas of MS and fibromyalgia become less significant um, and it still comes back down to what is the pulse telling me, what, is the, what, is the, what are the signs and symptoms and their presentations and then on top of that, what am I finding within my channel palpation? So it's... If it's for, for instance, the tendon channels, it doesn't necessarily have to be just a um, musculoskeletal issue. It's it's what we would call an aging, you know, it could be a, an eastern wood contraction. And that means that the expression of that eastward, um, you know, as in liver, and things are, are becoming um, uh, obstructed in some way or impeded, and that's the direction in which we need to treat. And um, and so that, that can be uh, one approach. And, of course, that could easily manifest as what we call today yeah, MS symptoms, fibromyalgia, uh, arthritic symptoms, uh, you know, a number of different things. It sounds like the Neijing acupuncture techniques are perhaps more similarly related to the classical five element acupuncture system. Is that true? Uh, no, I, 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 do you mean classical five element through Nanjing or through Worsley or which, which classical five element? Hmm, either. Can you, <laughs> so, can you answer on, on both? <laughs> so, okay, so through, through what they call classical five element as in through Worsley's sort of design of, of an acupuncture system, um, definitely not. It's, it's very, very different and the, I know that system approaches things through a, an emotional level um, to the extreme uh, and the Neijing certainly does not do that. Uh, in, the, in regards to sort of classical five element acupuncture, which you might find within the Nanjing, what you see later in Japanese acupuncture, it is certainly more closely related to that. I mean, the Japanese techniques, you'll often see different tools used, uh, which are based on the traditional nine needles. Um, but again, it's a, it's a little bit different. So when I was saying things like the East Wood and, and the sort of that from that directional perspective, it just means that that's the, that's the layers of, of the channel system that I'm going to be inspecting. And, um, and so I think, it, I think it, it's, it's significantly different uh, um, in, in how we sort of manipulate. But, I mean, the end result, sure, we are sticking needles into the body, but um, I think it's, it really comes down to that, that level. I mean, so some of the techniques are going to be superficial. I mean, there's a technique called Mausa. Mausa is about manipulating the, the hairs and the skin on, on the body, very fine techniques. And then you've got like Blancer, which is about going down deep towards the bone. And, you know, there's other techniques where you, you, know, you rub the bone with the needle or, and, and so forth. So it's, I think from that perspective, very different from uh, what you would consider classical fiber element acupuncture. Okay, thanks. You mentioned, <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely does. Um, and I think, you know, it's just also really helpful for the listeners. Some may know quite a lot about Neijing acupuncture and some might not know anything at all. So it's good that we get an understanding of also how are these lineages developed um, and Absolutely. what what they led to. Um, you know, so hearing that there's more, perhaps more connections here with what you're discussing with the Japanese style than there is with modern classical five element, you know, that's that's interesting. That's very interesting for me as well. Yeah. It's, well, the Japanese acupuncture is, is a fascinating and, in my opinion, very effective technique. 
Um, but it is based on the, a lot on the Nanjing, and the Nanjing, um, if you look at how the Nanjing sort of presents itself as a medical system um, or, or a textual lineage, it, it is quite different to the Nanjing. A lot of people see it as sort of like the evolution of the Nanjing or it's a continuation because it is a Jin text, a classical text. But, uh, you know, I, I've always approached it and, and many people in sort of the classical Han field approach it as a, as a separate medical style. And, um, and I think that's where we get some very significant divergence in, in uh, clinical approach. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that this style also focuses more on working with the qi through the channel and the vessels rather than through specific points. So would you be using locations to needle that are along a channel that may neither be a point or an asher point? And if you are, how do you select those? Yeah, so, so uh, after diagnostics in regards to, to pulse diagnosis or things, then channel palpation becomes uh, the, sort of the key idea on how, what my locations are for needling. Um, so absolutely within the, the uh, Suwen and Ling Shu, there are um, specific points at specific locations, namely, you know, the five shoe points, um, the five, five shoe points in in the Nanjing are only of 11 vessels, not of the, there's no points on the heart vessels um, within the Nanjing. So it's of the 11 vessels there. They, they are certainly very similar, but it's based heavenly, he, he, not heavenly, that's the name of the podcast, heavily on, um, <laughs> <laughs> heavily on, uh, on palpation. So then as we, uh, as I go to needle, it really comes down to that channel palpation. Um, but we use, obviously, the, the channel pathways, we use our sort of three-dimensional understanding of those pathways, um, and when I say that, it's not just Jing Mai, but looking at the expression in the Lo Mai, uh, looking at visible blood vessels, uh, understanding that the channels, you know, have a specific depth to them at specific areas, um, understanding the internal branches of the pathways as well, and then and then trying to manipulate from there. So. It's not just the Ashi points, although it often will look like that, but it's not just Ashi points as much as uh, the understanding that the, the acupuncture points in the Nanjing were essentially there as a guide to your palpation, and that, that the palpation sort of trumps um, that, that location or textbook location that we often see in TCM today. Yeah, that's something I really agree with and I find so interesting about acupuncture. So when you're palpating along the channel, are you selecting points based on a whole range of things like, you know, I'm looking for details like body temperature, you mentioned visual indicators like blood vessels, um, would it also be your, your sensing of the chi in the channel and perhaps where, it, you know, where the chi flow changes and isn't as it should be at that destination in the vessel's flow? Yeah, so um, so I, I try to, um, within my clinical practice, divide each section of diagnostics into individual entities. So, um, for instance, I mentioned before the pulse diagnosis of Renying Cheng Kou, which is feeling the pulse of the neck, which is Renying, which is stomach nine today, and Cheng Kou, which is the pulse of the wrist. And that's a technique which is about understanding ratios of strength between um, the, the channel pairing. So, for instance, you know your Tai Yin Yang Ming and, and um, Tai Yang Chao Yin sort of pairing, and it's done on a left and right sort of basis. So, by doing that, I'm going to be looking at two particular channel um, uh, pairs, and then investigating that channel there. Now, as I investigate, then I'm also going to look at how does that area maybe move. So, as in that's uh, movement and flexibility, that's assessing the Jin-Jin channels. I'm going to be looking at um, particular areas of pulsation along the channel that may exist. So other areas that pulse, for instance, say you're on the large intestine channel, well, around uh, the region of Hergu, there's a pulsation there, so I might also inspect those pulses. I'm going to be looking for areas that might be sunken or that might be hard and there might be resistance or even like muscle guarding or anything like that occurring. Um, temperature changes you mentioned, hot and cold, it's a big one, or changes in skin uh, colour, tone, dryness, those sorts of things. And then uh, on top of that, inspecting the, the low vessels separately as visible blood vessels that we can look at um, uh, and, and ultimately we, we would probably intervene through bleeding. So it, it's always done in different sections. And, um, and inspecting, I find inspecting each section means that 
after I've done that, I'm able to see a pattern and then treat according to that pattern. Um, but there's no, in, it's not, there's no point prescription in, in an aging except for maybe a few small techniques which are very specific um, in regards to point prescription. Um, otherwise, it's all about actually going to the regions um, that the pulse tells you to go to and inspecting that. So I'm interested. I'm really glad that you came back to talking about the um, the pulse at the neck um, because I was yes. going to ask you about it, <laughs> um, mainly because it's right at the front of my mind at the moment. I've got a patient, and I've had a few over the years, who, you know, he's had a um, – a bypass operation, and they took the arteries out of his out of out of his arm. So he doesn't have he doesn't have the traditional pulse that we would palpate for. And so, you know, my instinct is to always go and feel his pulse, and I'm like, oh, that's not there. So I, you know, I've been thinking, oh, I should really get into. It's been on my list to do forever to go and learn about, you know, feeling the pulse at the neck, and then there's also another one at the ankle. Is that right? Where is it where it's is it a similar system where you're using three fingers and you're feeling at depth and you're feeling you know on the, each side? Is it is it similar in that regard or is it more of an overall approach? So, well, I'll, I'll, probably the best way is to break down how the Neijing approaches these pulses. Um, so, uh, for for the pulse of the wrist when it's felt at an individual basis, we're feeling that circulation. You know, through the through the sun jail, through the through the three jails, um, kind of like a microsystem in terms of feeling the circulation in the in the heart, in the in the liver, feeling feeling the movement between um, the structures that surround that in the Neijing. So, uh, I think in, in modern modern. So, if we look at, for instance, the wrist pulse on the left side, a lot of people do heart, small intestine. In the Neijing, it's the heart and it's the centre of the chest. You have the liver and the diaphragm. You have the kidneys and the bowels. On the right side, you'd have you know your lung and the rest of the chest your spleen and stomach and kidneys and bowels as well. And then extension from there would be maybe uh, disorders of the lower part, such as the hips and the shins. If it's extensions up towards the palm into the phenol eminence, that's going to be more throat and head and so forth. So that the wrist pulse is really about understanding the body as a whole and, and that internal picture, which, you know, obviously we, we see as a, a true emphasis in the Nanjing, uh, Mai Jing, and then through the rest of Chinese medical history was that wrist pulse as our window into the body. But when we go to reddening chen kou, it is very specific within the Neijing. Now, reddening chen kou is an interesting technique because it was, I mean, it, it makes up at least 40% of pulse diagnosis in the Neijing and possibly even more because there's a lot of times when they mention uh, qualities in pulse diagnosis that uh, they don't mention where you're meant to actually be feeling it. So that's a little research project of mine looking into the qualities of different sites of the body. Um, but Renyin Chen Kou is it's so specific, it's, it's really only Jing Mai diagnosis. So it doesn't diagnose you know, um, obstructions within the organs, it doesn't diagnose, uh, well when I say obstructions, sorry, dysfunction within the organs, it doesn't diagnose dysfunction in the tendon channels or the low Mai or anything like that. It's purely about Jing Mai, that primary uh, branch circulation. So the Renyin Chen Kou um, is a, is a technique that you, requires you to have both the rending and the trencol pulse, so the neck and the pulse and the wrist at the same time. Um, so clinically, if I can sort of try to draw a picture for everyone, it would be as my patient's lying down, say I'm on the right side of the body, I would have my right hand um, on, their, on their right hand feeling the trencol and I'd have my left hand on their neck feeling the rending pulse. And what I'm looking for is really a, a difference in strength between what's happening at the neck and what's happening at the wrist which according to the Neijing is what's happening in the yang channels and what's happening in the yin channels. And uh, we feel for strength initially and then there are a few key qualities such as if it's uh, you know, an interrupted pulse or if it's fast or if it's large and so forth that lead us diagnostically in certain ways. And it's based on, on strength so you'd have your ratios. So you'd have like a two to one strength which would be for instance like if it's two to one that the renying is larger than the chancol, then the gallbladder and liver would be um, in disharmony, gallbladder channel uh, would be in excess, liver would be in deficient. So what we're going to do then is then go to gallbladder and liver channel on the right side and we're going to inspect each one of those and, uh, and look for areas that are in excess uh, on the gallbladder channel. Generally we look for two areas and then we're going to look for one area on the liver channel which is deficient. And then from there we might needle what's excess, we might moxa what's deficient and that would be a rending chain cold treatment in a nutshell. That was 
the, the fastest winning treatment I've ever talked about. So yeah, <laughs> that's a that's a great one hundred and one. Yeah, yeah, that it, makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, but the answer is we need the wrist pulse. So if someone's had their artery cut <laughs> out, yeah. then yeah, you've got to. That was a, a very long answer to say yes, you need the wrist pulse. Um, <laughs> But, but it's true. I mean, so I, I've worked with patients who certainly don't have that, um, and and you know you work around it. It means that we use other tools, um, you know, in our toolbox for for diagnostics. We oh, use, totally. Uh, you know, yeah. Use the other wrist. Use your channel um, palpation, observation. Complexion is a big part in um, in the aging as well, and the complexion and biting by the pulse. So if you can do it by, by complexion, then you get a lot of diagnostic information through that too, um, and and so forth. Yeah. How much do they talk about tongue diagnosis in the Neijing? They don't. <laughs> so I think the only mention of tongue is in relation to the heart, um, in that the heart sort of expresses itself through the tongue. Uh, otherwise, tongue diagnosis is not a, a Han dynasty technique. So you won't find tongue diagnosis in the Shan uh, Lung as a as a diagnostic technique either. Um, so I think tongue diagnosis really came into fashion around Ming dynasty, so about fifteen hundred years later. Also, oh, it's a recent. It's a fairly recent thing. Yeah, yeah, it's quite. It's quite recent. Um, I, I don't know the exact date. I said fifteen hundred, but I don't know. The, it's it's around the Ming Dynasty, I believe. It became a popular technique. It may have been mentioned earlier, um, but uh, yeah, it's, it certainly is not a technique used in the Han Dynasty. Um, yeah, complexion really was the key, uh, and I think tongue slowly sort of took over from looking at complexion. And unfortunately, I see. In, in a lot of modern TCM schools, the tongue seems to take over from pulse diagnosis simply because they just don't have the time to, to spend on the pulse in the university system. You know, it, I think there's a bit of a failing with pulse diagnosis in, in our modern education system. Um, so I see tongue becomes very popular. I think in so many courses, they start the course by saying, and we're going to learn pulse, which is very difficult, and we're going to learn tongue, which is very easy. And they really set people up to just rely on the tongue because they have this mental idea about how hard it is to learn the pulse. And yet I've found there are so many ways that if you cultivate your chi and your sensitivity and your capacity for feeling that you can really feel so many things through the pulse and the palpation and I think the schools need to not give it that preface. I, I absolutely agree and I mean you know I'm, I teach in a TCM school and I teach acupuncture. I don't, I don't generally teach pulse diagnosis but I really sort of hammer it into my students how important it is and, uh, and often teach um, you know summer school and things to try to help them with pulse diagnosis but it's uh, I agree it's um it just, I mean, tongue is easy because you can look at a picture of it and everyone can agree what it looks like. Uh, pulse is, you know, it is subjective and, and really the old techniques of learning pulse was through a certain teacher. Um, I, I've, I'm trying with my program to teach the pulse in a very particular way. Um, the Neijing and the Ling Shu, for instance, Ling Shu Chapter 4, you know, gives, gives us um, very particular pulse qualities that we need to learn. And, um, and then I teach my palpation techniques, which were taught to me by various teachers. Um, and then, you know, you also have other teachers, I think, um, Arnova Sluis, who, who's uh, the Shang Hanung extraordinaire. Um, he, uh, his methods of teaching pulse diagnosis for herbal medicine um, through his uh, Tianzhen lineage uh, is, in my opinion, second to none. It's an excellent technique and I've kind of, I haven't used his as a basis, but he's a very good close friend of mine. He's been a great influence on sort of how I think about and sort of structure some of my courses. Yeah, definitely. Um, I can I can say all the people I know who've studied with Arno have come out of his courses feeling very confident um, in going into quite a lot of detail about pulse, which is great because, you know, I mean, we were, I was taught at school that it takes 30 years to learn pulse. And so, you know, it's kind of almost like just don't even bother, just like feel it and pay attention to it. And, in a, you know, in 10 or 15 years' time, you might have an idea about what's going on, which I felt was really, it just made it seem really almost pointless to become, to become proficient at it. But, yeah, I agree with Fee as well that um, there's a lot that you can feel. Like even, you know, my patients sometimes ask me, you know, they say, what are you feeling in my pulse? And I'll actually get them to put their fingers on their pulse and to talk them through the basics of how to, 
how to you know interpret and understand what it is that's underneath their fingers so yeah it's um i'm i'm glad to hear that um that you're encouraging your students to uh to not give up on learning pulse diagnosis yeah, yeah. me too <laughs> i think yeah. this idea of of how long it takes to learn the pulse is really strange because it kind of suggests to you that taking the pulse will also teach you about the pulse and so you know in I heard it was six years to master the pulse Claire heard it was 30 but that's because of course someone on this path is going to never stop learning and continually learn but I think that point about how just taking the pulse like pulse taking pulse teaches you how to take pulse um, that it will start speaking to you straight away yeah, it's, uh, I think I, I absolutely agree with that and I, I think students um, from, from year one shouldn't be, shouldn't be afraid of what Pulse is and um, one of my key sort of ideas in teaching, whether I'm teaching first year students or whether I'm teaching practitioners who have had you know, 20, 30 years of experience is to teach one thing if you're in a classroom to teach everyone in that classroom exactly the same sort of basis so that they can communicate with it as well. So make sure things like finger pressure, make sure you sort of your anchoring finger, which you know might be your thumb or might be the table, um, is, is the same. Make sure they know how to establish uh, what stomach chi is on the pulse. Make sure they understand that ultimately the pulse is really, I mean in the Neijing it says, you know, it really comes down to um, eight basic qualities or, or I mean four qualities and their and their opposites. So you know it's a pulse, you know, fast or slow or you know tight or, or large or anything like that or slippery or choppy. You know, all, all these pulses are, are they're very, very straightforward, very simple at base level. And I feel that a lot of programs jump heavily into, oh you've got to learn these twenty eight qualities, here they all are. And people go, I don't really understand how they all link together. And and they really do link together. So if you if you really keep it simple, um, and I always tell students don't worry about the individual qualities and from the get-go. Just understand, ask yourself, what is, what is the yin-yang quality of the pulse? So is it, is it hitting my fingers at the surface or do I have to search for it? Is it fast? Is it slow? Is it in the upper part of the pulse or the lower part of the pulse in terms of you know, the chirp position or guan position or, or trend position? And, and then over time, they're going to educate their fingers and, and that finger education is going to going to help them. And then when they find a teacher or when they find a particular style of pulse diagnosis, which I think is very important, um, I think a lot of people sort of chop and change between pulse diagnosis in the one session while they're feeling that one pulse. Um, so, you know, for me, uh, I, I still do certainly a little bit of herbal medicine. If I do herbal medicine, I, I have to approach it from a completely different system, which is the Shanghai Moon. Um, and then my pulse diagnosis is going to be different through that system. Uh, if it's through acupuncture in the Neijing, then it has to be through that system as well. So I have to kind of put different hats on when I'm uh, dealing in those two areas, which is why I focus mainly on the Neijing because that's, that is my focus. Um, but when they find a teacher, then they're, they're going to have that pulse calibration and their teacher is going to say, okay, well, you know, this is this quality and it, and it responds to maybe, you know, this pattern of disease or this presentation or these signs and symptoms that we're seeing in front of ourselves, but they already have that base finger education of what it means that if the pulse is going to be, you know, superficial or fast or anything like that. So I think it needs to be, I think that semester or year or whatever they do at colleges on pulse diagnosis need to be simplified greatly. And I mean, I think, I think a semester on eight qualities is, is enough. Um, as in, is, is it enough to, to get started? I don't think they should be jumping into, you know, the 28 different qualities of the Maijing and all these sorts of things straight away. Mm. You know, one day someone's going to come up with this really clever device or series of devices that allow us to teach pulse properly. Like when medical students are learning how to, like as an example, um, learning how to palpate breasts to find lumps, for example. They'll have like these silicon models and there'll be one breast that's normal and then there'll be one breast that's like filled with cancer and the, the students have the opportunity to palpate on a, on a model and to see what, you know, like to learn in a classroom environment that, you know, in a way that is, you know, easy to, well, it's, it's, you can replicate it because it's a set you know, it's a set thing. It's not a person that's going to change or, you know. And I think that, you know, if we can come up with something like that for Pulse, like some kind of 
some kind of like mold. Silicon. A, a silicon pulse silicon dummy. A silicon <laughs> wrist pulse dummy that like has this tubing of like water that gets pumped through in a certain pattern and it might kind of swirl around in a funny way to replicate like a choppy pulse where you could make it like a, a tight pulse or a really wiry pulse and then you can feel it and, you know, it's not going to change, you know, everyone in the class can feel it and go, ah, oh, right, I get it and you can feel it a 100 times. You don't have to wait for someone to be presenting with a wind heat to be able to feel that pulse quality. Some clever listener is going to listen to it and it's going to be a million-dollar idea. <laughs> That's right. All those Chinese medicine entrepreneurs out there, start designing your silicon wrist pulse simulator now. We would love to use it. Uh, I actually think someone is working on that, to be honest. Awesome. Um, I'd I'll, <laughs> I'll have to find the, the reference, but I believe I've seen a few things like that. I think it would be great in terms of understanding what a fast pulse feels like or a slow pulse. Um, I think in regards to getting specific qualities, I think nothing will be the real thing. And, and, um, and, and that's why I think we need to make sure that the classics don't die so that teachers for generations to come can actually um, you know, show, show their students and show their show prospective practitioners and things on, on patients real time. Because I, I just don't think it'll ever be, you'll, you'll never get two pulses exactly the same on a patient. It does. It does change so dramatically. I mean, unless it's like yeah, base pulse qualities, and in that case, I think a little silicon thing would be fantastic. But for mm. all the variations and positions, and then you've got different types of skin and all that sort of thing, I, I think it it, it would it could um, it, it, you, you need you need to have hands on people. You know, I think that's in the end uh, you need to have your hands touching an individual and. And something that's breathing, and something something that's different. Otherwise, that sort of tangible element of what acupuncture and Chinese medicine is will kind of get lost. So, mm. yeah, it is. Unlike breasts, it is a lot easier and more acceptable to feel a lot of pulses <laughs> pulses when you're learning palpation. But there are certain, you know, there are certain pulse qualities that you could spend years looking around. Different, feeling different pulses before you even get to feel one and then you go through the process of saying oh wow so is that the spinning bean pulse and you know tracking down that that was one of those less common pulses that you're likely to feel in a western country or in you know certain medical situations. Yeah I, I, that's a very good point um, particularly in modern day clinic there's a lot of there's a lot of pulses the death pulses um, which you know, a lot of the classical texts talk about just um, just won't exist. And um, when I was first sort of uh, studying, and, and um, I had the, the misfortune of, of feeling uh, two or three pulses, uh, death pulses, as in as that person passed. Um, my, my teacher, Dr. Tai, who's who, if anyone listening knows him, he's quite a eccentric, raw individual. Was jumped on me about you know. You need to um, you need to remember what that pulse is like. You know, it's it's like hey, it's a bit, a bit of a traumatic thing going on here. But uh, he, he was like, no, you got to feel that pulse and, and and understand what that pulse means. So it was. Um, I guess I take that take that lesson to heart. Uh, mm. So if this if this device, the silicon wrist pulse simulator, could actually download and record and then um, simulate many different pulses, it would be great to be able to take it around and collect you know, so many different types of pulses and then use it. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I mean, you could, you could make something that, that replicates a fast pulse, but you could do that easy. You could get someone to run around the block and they can replicate a fast pulse. But there's, I think, little things like, for instance, I mean, choppy pulse and slippery pulse possibly, I think you could. Uh, but, you know, one of the most common pulses in the Neijing, which is a, a GMI, which is like a, an impatient pulse, is going to be a hard thing to replicate. Uh, through machinery, it's, it's something which really extends. It's so unique to the vessels. So I guess we have to learn how to replicate vessels first. What's an impatient pulse? I've never heard that term before. Jimai, uh, Jimai. So G uh, is um, it's the opposite of one way. It's what's often used to actually replicate uh, to actually talk about something uh, when basically the shen or the yang within the vessels 
Um, you know, so in, in Sue in chapter three, they talk about blood as liquid young. So when the young within the vessels is um, contained in a specific way, causing this uh, impatient uh, presentation. So, so in the in the Neijing or, or Lin Shu chapter four, it really it talks about um, the Jimai, which is this impatient, anxious, worried, or even hurried pulse. So some people do translate it as rapid, which I believe is a mistake. Then you have Huan, which is the slow or unhurried or more sort of gradual pulse. Then you have the Da Mai, which is the large, Shao Mai, which is the small pulse, Hua, which is slippery, and then Su Mai, which is choppy. And they're your six pulses that every other pulse quality will ultimately extend from. So you learn those six pulses, then you're good. <laughs> yeah, right. And so, and so impatient is different than rapid. Impatient is a little bit different to rapid. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to have a faster um, beat to it. it. It just means that it's going to just sort of, um, well, again, this is, a, this is why we need to feel the pulses, isn't it? <laughs> because to, to explain it in certain ways, it, it's, it's more that it's going to have a particular um, quality to it, which, well, I guess the impatient quality, there's another one called um, the, the, the Zhao quality, which is, uh, basically, imagine you've drunk, a, oh, this is how, how often I'll explain it, imagine you've drunk a lot of different uh, Red Bull and caffeine and things like that and you get there's a shake that happens that occurs with the pulse and that's kind of, that's what we talk about with, with uh, Ji Mai and, and Zao Mai. So you might have learnt it as the hurried pulse? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, I, I, it's so hard wonder, to I mean, talk about pulse on a, on a podcast. But you know, very. <laughs> Are you two taking? I'm actually taking my pulse on my neck and my wrist while we're chatting and feeling around my ankle. <laughs> the, the, the the reason the reason uh, so this GMI is is a is a pulse that I, that I've been looking into that I've been working with my teacher for a long time and the reason um, is 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 that GMI in itself uh, is is a sign that there is a contraction happening within the vessels. So even though it is a hurried pulse or anything, it doesn't actually indicate heat. It indicates a cold-based contraction. So it, it's, that's why I think it's, it, to say it's rapid is, is a mistake because a rapid pulse will often indicate heat. Mm. When the GMI is something which, yeah, there's an element of contraction putting a lot of pressure inside the pulse. And that, that's where I guess this understanding of, uh, of what the Shen is, of what Yang Qi is, and, and what, what the actual different structures that we're feeling in, in uh, classical medicine may differ to modern in terms of when you're when you're palpating the pulse, the actual vessel itself is is just a yin or what we call a jing container. You know, it's it's all it is is a container, but the, the actual substance inside, which we talk about blood being yin, but blood is is warm. Um, blood comes from the heart, which is related to fire. Uh, blood is a young quality. It's it's liquid young. You know, it really is a warming quality, and um, and so when that when that contraction happens on it, that that young becomes impatient. It's like it's like having someone, a manic person trapped in a room or someone who has claustrophobia in the elevator. There's that that um, anxiety that comes with it. Maybe that anxious pulse is probably the best way to, to discuss it. That is a great explanation and I know exactly the type of pulse you're talking about and I feel it all the time in my patients. Yeah, exactly. And once you feel it, you'll, it's, it's, it's makes a lot of sense. Mm. So there you go. Links your chapter four. Have a read through it. There's a little bit on pulse down there. And uh, that kind of makes up the majority of my, my pulse uh, introduction course when I talk about it is that small little section in chapter four. Great. So we talked a little bit before about how, you know, the, the Han dynasty kind of laid the foundation for what, came later with Chinese medicine, what, what was it that was going on leading up to the Neijing being written and how was it that they kind of organised themselves to such an extent to be able to write that and, you know, it became a real pivotal point in the history of Chinese medicine. Can you tell us a little bit about the context of the Neijing and how you see it as being a really important text that you've essentially based your career on? Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's quite an interesting time in China in that the, the Han Dynasty, um, in, in all elements of, of um, finance, of uh, agriculture, even taxation, it was a, it was a, 
a, a sign of unity within China to a certain extent. I mean, obviously, they're still talking 2,200 years ago. There was still a lot of uh, horrible things happening at that time in China, but it was still was a time of unity. It was when when there was this um, this understanding that uh, of connection between all, all facets of society and life and. Uh, the understanding of the connection to what's happening around us in terms of environment, in terms of, you know, looking at uh, cosmology, um, and, and like I said, even going to, to that, that harmony of uh, the family home and those sorts of things. They were all being developed and cultivated in Han times. Now, prior to that, we had what's called the Warring States era. Well, they had the Qin Dynasty before, which was a pretty horrible little dynasty, which a lot of book burnings, including probably the majority of the original Nanjing uh, was burned, um, but then prior to that was the Warring States, where China was essentially in a, in a time of chaos, and um, and there was a lot of uh, civil uh, unrest and, and uh, war going on at, in China at the time. Uh, and of course, out of the Warring, or during the Warring States, a number of key philosophers were, came about, including Lao Tzu, Zhuang Tzu, Kong Tzu, or Confucius. You know, those sort of philosophies started to uh, or ideology started to develop, um, and obviously the Confucian uh, ideology became the ideology of the Han state, with a lot of the Taoist principles, which were a little bit more, I guess, uh, too free-going for, um, for a government, uh, were suppressed a little bit. So at that time, um, we, we had a few texts that were kind of written a little bit sort of in that, that, that changeover um, between um, the Warring States to the Qin Han dynasties, to the unification of China, uh, such as the Guanzi, the Huainanzi, um, which were texts primarily on, on self-cultivation or cultivation of um, communities and um, sort of this Taoist, legalist, Confucian mix. Uh, and then we also had um, some medical texts which really only became known in 1973, which is the Marlon Blair manuscripts, um, which described, you know, 11 vessels and cauterization as treatment and bleeding through uh, cutting with bianstone. Um, you know, there were a lot of these sort of things. And then also herbal medicine as well. Um, within that Marlon manuscripts, they had the Wusha Arping phone, which is the 52 prescriptions. Um, you know, the medicine was still disjointed. So the Nanjing as a text, um, which it is believed to be a, a conglomeration of different um, authors from different periods, or, or possibly even written in the council. I mean, uh, I know Unschild's got a number of theories as to how the Nanjing was constructed. Um, I know some others have some different theories. Uh, but ultimately, we can see that the writing style is not the same from chapter 1 to 81 in the Su Wen, or, or vice versa. And we know that chapters were added later uh, by Wang Bing um, a number of years later. Uh, the, the, the Nanjing represents that unification that was happening at the time in China of the Han Dynasty. And, and all the things in Chinese medicine that we hold dear, such as um, yin-yang theory and five-phase theory, um, the channel theory and all that, that all sort of came to light as a medical practice in the Nanjing, which had never really, that we know of, occurred prior to that time, prior to that Han Dynasty time. So the Nanjing is, is I see, is, is such an important pivot uh, not only culturally, but uh, like it's medically, culturally, um, in in all of civilization, and how things became uh, unified as, and, and connecting. Um, uh, I guess on every level, you know, from, from that's how we approach the body, but that's also we understand that the body is just a reflection of the environment around it, and we understand the environment and on Earth is a reflection of that sort of universal principle. So, um, and I don't think any other text really has ever captured it in that way. Hence it being a Jing text. I mean, the Jing, like we have the Tao Te Jing, we have, uh, you know, the Yi Jing. Jing is, which is the same character we use for Jing and Jing Mai and Jing Jin and all that. Jing is this understanding of that connection, but a thread to something which is to its origin as well. Um, so it's it's something which is, in my opinion, is, is really, it's real, it's genuine. And, um, and, and that sort of genuine component uh, was never really seen again in Chinese medicine outside of the Han, in my opinion. It started to get blended with religious beliefs, with, um, you know, political beliefs and, and those sorts of things. And and the Neijing, of course, it still has elements of those in there, just was very, very real to me as a, as a medical practice. 
Um, and I, I would say the same of the Sartan um, Lung as well. It's just a very real, clear medical text which occurred at a time where Chinese medicine was on high. And I think we're slowly diluted from that time and hopefully we can come back to it. I always just get overwhelmed with this sense of fascination when I time travel back to that period um, and examine those texts as well. It really seemed like a real clear point in time which then um, seems to take quite a while before something clear emerged again. Um, did you happen to hear our episode with Regine Golding on the Yellow Emperor as a Time Lord? No, no I didn't. That may be of interest for you. Yeah, I've, oh, I've read some of her work. So. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, she went she went right back in time to, you know, looking at all of the astrology of what was actually all the astronomy of, you know, what was actually going on in the sky at the time and, you know, what did that mean for them at the time? Like, yeah, it was a really in-depth knowledge that she's got on this topic as well, but in a slightly different context to what you've got. Yeah, yeah, I mean I guess it's also it comes down to my personality, um, in that I certainly approach the Neijing. Like I said, I want to approach it from a clinical perspective, so I approach it in that sort of straightforward manner. So there's a lot in the Neijing um, which I'm, I'm sure that um, the uh, Grosin or Golding <laughs> uh, approaches and Rishin, thank you. Whoops, um, and um, that that that. That approach, I know that, um, I mean, so in, in Chinese medicine around the world, there's really two people that are teaching it at the moment, that's, that are teaching the Neijing, uh, that's myself and uh, Ed Neal, who I used to work with um, for ISCA in, in, in Portland, and, um, and I, I know his, his emphasis on, on uh, the uh, Wu Yu Lu Qi chapters, which are the later chapters of the Su Wen, which were added a little bit later. Um, the expression of like what's called Baza Suanming, which is uh, you know people who, who are heavily into feng shui know what Baza Suanming is, which is the uh, four pillars of destiny, sort of um, I guess elements of divination and um, uh, sort of using uh, astronomy and cosmology to sort of calculate the um, the makeup of an individual. That that sort of thing, um, which which certainly does make up part of of Chinese medicine and of the Neijing, uh, is, is, was never a big interest of mine. My interest really came down to, again, that sort of grassroots, how do I manipulate and and um, really make a difference on the table uh, and, and, you know, I'm feeling the pulse, that pulse is wrong, how do I change that right here, right now with the tools that I have? So it's, um, I'm very interested and I think one day certainly I'll get more into that component of it. It just comes also from my, my teacher, um, you know, Dr. Tai, who who um, is is a definitely a no BS individual in any way whatsoever. He's is <laughs> you know, I always I always imagine Yoda in real life, and that's Dr. Tai. He's just he doesn't muck around, and um, and so he doesn't have time for that sort of stuff. He's 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 seen too many patients to try to go too heavily heavily into <laughs> into uh, the uh, astronomy and, and those sorts of things. Yeah, mm. it's a fascinating field, very fascinating field. And, um, oh, sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, well, with your interest in um, neurophysiology and neurological conditions as well, that developing that skill in the Neijing context of really just understanding the flow of energy through all of the vessels um, sounds like a really appropriate kind of system to combine with neurological conditions as well. Yeah, well, the, the needling techniques particularly, um, I mean, spinal cord injury uh, obviously is, is a very tough thing to treat. Um, I, I remember talking to one other uh, classical, or supposedly classical practitioner um, who just who, who said they never want to treat people with uh, spinal cord injury and things because they find it too undynamic, it's too boring. And, and you know, that kind of really, um, uh, well, pissed me off because, because it goes against that classical principle of that we must, you know, do our best to help, you know, every people, and that, you know, no knot can can never be untied. So I um I, I really sought out to find someone who 
worked with um, spinal cord injury, with stroke rehabilitation, having had people in my own family affected by it, um, having had a, a minor spinal cord injury myself, um, that that worked with that. And, and yeah, Dr. Tai, um, well, I mean, you know, he, he's the man when it comes to that sort of thing. I mean, he at the time he was performing unbelievable miracles. I mean, now that I understand his approach, uh, you know, they're not miracles. It's just good medicine. So it's um, it's he's he's incredible. It sounds great, and it's so. Um... It's always great to be, you know, to have a guest on the show who's got a real passion for, you know, for what they do. And, you know, I think it's a really, well, from my point of view, it's a very brave thing, I think, to um, to have done what you do um, in, in terms of, you know, really niching your practice. But I guess, you know, from your point of view, it's something that you can't not do. Like it's it's almost like a calling, I guess. And so, um, yeah, I'm very very grateful to have you um, share all this with us today on the show and I have definitely learnt a lot about pulses and all kinds of things. So, yeah, thank you for, for sharing that with us and for being on the show today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and I, I really appreciate the work you both are doing for Chinese medicine around the, around the globe. Yes, and thank you as well from me for having you on the show. It's such an interesting topic I feel like we could delve into each of those areas that we focused on for a long time. Maybe we'll have you back uh, later on and we can do some more episodes on some of these topics. We go deeper. And if any of our entrepreneur listeners are making plans for the Silicon Wrist Pulse Simulator, we'd love to hear from you. And if any of our other listeners have any questions or comments on Neijing acupuncture, you can share your love for it or your curiosity or your insight. Please post those comments on our Facebook page. It's the Heavenly Chi page on Facebook. And we'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.